Hello, everybody, and welcome to the program. You're listening to AutismPodcast.org, and it is your audio connection to autism. My name is Michael Bull. I'm your host, and I have a nine-year-old boy with autism. Well, it looks like summer is pretty much ending, at least for me. I head back to Shanghai in about another week or so, but uh, I have one podcast to deliver before I take off, and Shannon and I interview Dr. Ross Green. He's the author of The Explosive Child. He's also the author of a new book called Lost in School. It's uh, about explosive children, basically children who don't transition too well from one activity to another. It isn't exclusively about kids with autism, but if you have a child with autism, it's a good chance you may find that he or she doesn't transition so well. Okay, here's a little bit of information about Dr. Green from his website. So let me give you a spiel here. Ross W. Green is Associate Clinical Professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and originator of the Collaborative Problem-Solving Approach, which was first articulated in his acclaimed book, The Explosive Child. He has authored numerous articles, chapters, and scientific papers on kids with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges and the effectiveness of the CPS model in helping them and their caregivers. His research has been funded by, among others, the Stanley Research Institute, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, National Institutes of Mental Health, the U.S. Department of Education, and the Maine Juvenile Justice Advisory Group. (gasps) Dr. Green consults exclusively, I mean extensively, to general and special education schools, inpatient psychiatry units, and residential and juvenile detention facilities, and lectures widely throughout the world. His media appearances include, and this is my favorite, The Oprah Show, Dateline NBC, The Morning Show, Good Morning America, and National Public Radio. Enjoy. Dr. Ross Green, thanks so much for joining us on the program today. My pleasure. Hi, Dr. Green. Nice to meet you. Um, I think you you're most well-known for, uh, for your book, The Explosive Child, right? Is that, is that your most popular book, Explosive, The Explosive well, Child, right? Well, it's the book that has sold the most copies. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what an explosive child is, since that's probably a theme throughout your books? Well, explosive has become a bit of a metaphor for um, kids who become aggressive or violent or upset or scream or kick or swear uh, when they're frustrated about something. I've actually grown um, not to love the term mostly because it's uh, not very specific, but also because it suggests that the behavior is occurring unexpectedly, surprisingly, precipitously. And actually, that turns out not to be the case. I find that, (laughs) excuse me, the vast majority of so-called explosions um, are actually very predictable. And so I guess I'm not all that keen on uh, the term anymore, even though um, nobody's changing the name of the book anytime soon, that's for sure. Yeah, I guess you have to be stay with what's popular, huh? Well, I think that it would be hard to change the title of that book at this point, although these days I'm referring to these kids less as explosive and more as just challenging because I've had a lot of people say to me, Does, do the same principles that you describe as helpful for explosive kids, are they also helpful for kids who are perhaps more imploders, kids who are more on the anxious, internalizing end of the spectrum? And the answer, of course, is yes, but um, so I, I am using the term challenging much more often these days than explosive. Well, could you describe for us, sort of paint a picture, let's say Johnny, could you describe Johnny who is in 
conflicted, explosive child. Could you sort of tell us a story so we can identify with that child? Well, um, the first thing is challenging kids aren't challenging every second of every waking hour. They're change- challenging under certain conditions and in some situations and under some circumstances. And the first important part of helping a challenging kid is to figure out when challenging episodes occur. Challenging episodes occur because the world or the environment is demanding of a kid skills that the kid isn't able to deliver on, at least at that moment. And in The Explosive Child, as well as in the new book, Lost at School, I spent a great deal of time uh, delineating what types of skills challenging kids lack. Um, They may lack frustration tolerance. They may lack flexibility and adaptability. They may lack problem-solving skills and a whole host of others that I describe in the books. But um, if if the world isn't demanding a skill that a kid isn't lacking, in other words, if the world is demanding skills and the kid has the skills to respond to what the world is demanding, you're not going to see challenging episodes, at least at that moment. It's when the world demands skills that a kid is lacking, or quite frankly, an adult is lacking, that the likelihood of a challenging episode is greatly heightened. Now, what that challenging episode looks like in each individual kid depends on whether that kid's a crier, criers cry, or a swearer, swearers swear, or a hitter, or a spitter, or a headbanger, um, or a kicker, or a runner, or a whiner, or a powder, or a sulker. These are all points on uh, a different spectrum than people who are accustomed to talking about the autism spectrum talk about. I talk about the spectrum of challenging behaviors that occur when the world demands skills that a person is unable unable to deliver on at that moment. And that's the spectrum I'm talking about. There's sort of the easy end, pouting, sulking, whining, crying. And then there's the less easy end, screaming, swearing, hitting, kicking, spitting, headbanging, running, and worse. Um, those are the things the kids do, but I'm a whole lot more interested in why they do them. Why do they do them? They're lacking crucial skills. And in that respect, perhaps the most revolutionary thing about both the explosive child and lost at school is that it helps us understand that challenging behavior in kids is best understood as a form of developmental delay. All right. So I read the list of developmental delays. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and my 14-year-old is delayed in every single one of them. Where do you start? Well, focusing on lagging skills can be a bit overwhelming. These days I'm talking about lagging skills as the why, W-H-Y, of challenging behavior. And it helps us accomplish crucial mission number one, which is to understand. Uh, one of my biggest missions in life is to help people understand why challenging kids are challenging. Lagging skills and identifying each one of them specifically help us understand why a challenging kid is challenging. But in terms of the rest of the work that needs to be done after we're through understanding, it's solving problems. And so the next crucial assessment piece, and I go into greatest detail about this in Lost at School because it's the most current rendition of the collaborative problem-solving model. Um, The fourth edition of The Explosive Child comes out uh, in a little bit. Um, uh, But the other crucial piece to assess is um, what I call unsolved problems. Unsolved problems occur at the intersect of demands for skills and someone's 
inability to meet those demands. So it occurs at the intersect of lagging skills and demands for those skills. So, for example, homework would be an unsolved problem if, on a particular homework assignment, the world was demanding certain skills and the kid didn't have the skills to deliver the goods. Now you have an unsolved problem, homework. And homework, a particular homework assignment, uh, is precipitating challenging episodes. The goal of collaborative problem solving is to get those problems solved. In other words, each challenging kids has kind of what we might metaphorically describe as a pile of unsolved problems that just follows them around every week. Same problems, same unsolved problems precipitating challenging episodes on a daily or weekly basis. The goal of intervention is to get those problems solved collaboratively so that they move from the unsolved pile to the solved pile. It's only unsolved problems that cause challenging behavior. Solved problems don't. While we are in the midst of doing collaborative problem solving because of the very important ingredients that collaborative problem solving brings to the mix, not only are we solving problems, we are indirectly teaching the skills that these kids are lacking. So I find that the focus needs to be on lagging skills in the beginning so that people understand why the kid is challenging. But then the focus shifts to unsolved problems, what I call the who, what, where, when of challenging behavior, because what we're really going to be doing is solving problems as the mechanism for teaching a lot of those skills. Okay, let me interrupt you one second. So when you have a kid who's lost it and you want to help them resolve this, find some resolution, what's the first step? I know well, that it's empathy. Is that right? Is that the right. first thing that you need to do? Okay, tell us about well, that. And, well, quite frankly, there's, th there's three steps. The first one is called the empathy step. What I've been telling people these days is I'm not all that ecstatic with what I called the steps, or even that I organized them as steps. I'd prefer to think of them as ingredients. Steps feels a little too technique-y for me these days, although many people have told me not to give up the steps because it helps them learn it more easily. So I'm happy to give you the name of the three steps. Empathy is number one. Define the problem is number two. The invitation is number three. But I'd really rather talk about the ingredients. The ingredient that the empathy step brings to the mix is gathering information about the kid's concern or perspective on a given unsolved problem so that we understand his perspective or his concern or what's getting in his way. Until we understand what's getting in his way, we won't get this problem solved, and if we don't get this problem solved, it will continue precipitating challenging behavior. So step number one, and this is a hard one for many adults because adults often skip past the empathy step. I guess the important thing to know here is empathy is actually not the main ingredient of the empathy step, so it's a bit of a misnomer. I wish that I called it the information gathering and understanding step. So it's the information and understanding ingredient. But a lot of adults skip past the empathy step either because they're not exactly sure what words to use or because they don't quite see the point or because they think they already know what the kid's concern is and um, they don't. So it's worth putting some time and effort into gathering information so that we understand as fully as possible the kid's concern on each given unsolved problem. The next If you don't know, Dr. Green, if you don't know what their, what their issue is, what do you do in the empathy step? Do you just start kind of throwing out things like, I, I think you're confused because it's, it's not the day you thought it was, or I think you're mad because you didn't get to sit where you wanted to sit. Do you just start throwing things out to start the process going? What do you do when you're just clueless? If you, the adult, are clueless, you ask. Yeah, specifically the mom. 
<laughs> well, but the wording of the empathy step is kind of a opening. Here's how it would sound. I've noticed that. Those are usually the words that start the empathy step. Because, oh, I should make a distinction. There's, there's two ways to do this, emergently and proactively. And emergently is not your best bet because it's occurring in the heat of the moment and usually um, has time constraints attached. And you're not going to gather as much information or very high-quality information if a kid is already heated up. So a big part of collaborative problem solving these days is planning for these conversations, what I call planning for plan B, because um, these are much better conversations and they, are, they yield much higher quality information when they take place proactively, like almost making an appointment with the kid to have a conversation about a particular topic. Um, but proactive collaborative problem solving starts with the words, I've noticed that, and it might sound like this, I've noticed that um, this particular homework assignment has been giving you a lot of trouble. What's up? Um, basically what you're doing is you're, you're, you've got your list of unsolved problems and you're plucking one whatever one you want to be talking about right now, and dropping it into in between, I've noticed that, and what's up? And then the what's up is the kid's invitation, if you will, to provide information. The adult should suggest possibilities, generally speaking, only if the kid really has no idea or if the kid doesn't have the words to tell us um, or if we're met with total silence and the silence goes on for 30, 40, 50 seconds. Um, so yes, it's fine to make suggestions about what could be getting in the kid's way, but even better to give the kid the chance to tell you. That's the empathy step. All right. Okay. So you now you you know what 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 triggered what the trigger was for that behavior. What's now the we next know what step? What the kid's concern is. Okay. What their concern is. Okay. That's a, a new perspective, right? I'm uh, sorry. That's kind of a new perspective for us, right? I mean, is, to recognize. I mean, is, is a concern and a trigger the same thing, or were they are they distinct? I tend to stay away from the word trigger these days. I've used it in the past, but I've sort of moved away from it. Um, I'd prefer to use unsolved problem, but the goal of the empathy step is to get the kid's concern or perspective on the table, basically what he feels is getting in his way. On a given and then, unsolved problem. Then what's next? Okay. Then comes where to do you find go? the problem step. This is where the adult gets their concern or perspective on the table. Uh, this brings a new set of challenges to adults because in many instances, adults actually don't know what their concerns are. They know what their solutions are. And notice we haven't started talking about solutions yet because you really can't start talking about solutions until you know what the concerns or perspectives are of the two parties, kid first, adult second. The reason it's not adult first is because that's what, what I call plan A sounds like. And that's when the kid thinks he's about to have adult will imposed upon him, and now he's not participating in the conversation anymore. So it's the kid's concern first, adult concern second. No solutions yet. The steps one and two are totally oriented toward getting concerns on the table, and we don't put any solutions on the table until the third step, which is called the invitation. I wish I'd have called it the brainstorming step, because that's really what's going on in this ingredient. It's kid and adult brainstorming solutions, but solutions of a certain type, solutions that are going to address the concerns of both parties. Often, kids provide solutions that will address only their concerns. 
adult solutions tend to be strongly oriented toward adult concerns. And so this presents yet another set of challenges to both kid and adult, because now they are trying to come up with solutions that will address both concerns. And what may be obvious to people who aren't familiar with this model is that this is a lot of work, and it requires some new skills of both kid and adult. Luckily, it's work, but it's not anywhere near as much work as interacting with a kid in a way that causes challenging behavior. Okay, can I ask a question? Of course. Is this where is this where the term that I saw in one of your books, surrogate frontal lobe, comes into play? Yeah, another term that I've moved away from, but it's fine. Um, these days, I use the term tour guide. Um, I really like that term, though. It, it helped me, but maybe, ma- yeah, little, maybe you can explain it better. Well, basically, surrogate frontal lobe in the past has referred to the need for adults to do some of the um, to help the kid regulate his emotions and think through problems. I find surrogate frontal lobe to be a bit pejorative these days, so I've moved a little bit away from it um, and actually don't use the term in my books anymore or even in my talks, but um, it's fine. It, it basically refers to the fact that the kid has shown us quite convincingly that he's not that good at solving problems, being flexible, being adaptable, dealing with frustration, he's going to need adult help to do those things well. Um, That's what surrogate frontal lobe has typically referred to. Uh, In the context of plan B, it's true. The adult is the one who is overseeing the process. I don't think we can rely on challenging kids to oversee the process in the beginning. We need to rely on their parents or their teachers or other adult caregivers for that. Um, Over time, We are looking for the kid to develop new skills and learn how to solve problems and deal with frustration and be flexible independently of the people who've been providing him help because it's at that point where the kid really doesn't need you anymore. And that, of course, was the whole goal in the first place. Okay, so your your newest book, which is called Lost in School, right? It's taking this lost at school. It's taking this model that a parent can use at home and taking it into a school-wide system. Is that right? That's correct. Right. And so how, as, as parents and educators, how do you come together to, to be a team in that? What's your recommendation? Well, um, I find that it's not that hard, but I find that a lot of the ingredients that we just talked about that are crucial to solving problems um, with kids are equally indispensable when it comes to problem solving between adults. I've worked with many parents who um, felt like schools were not a terribly welcoming place for them, felt like they were being blamed for their kids' behavioral problems. Um, Worked with many teachers who felt like they were being blamed and that the folks at home didn't understand what they were going through at school. So there's clearly a need for some mechanism for parents and school personnel to work better together. And quite frankly, uh, oversimplified as this may sound, I find that it's those same three ingredients, um, getting the concerns of one party on the table and being crystal clear about them, getting the concerns of the other party on the table and being crystal clear about them, and then brainstorming solutions that are realistic and mutually satisfactory to both parties. Uh, Boy, it's those very same ingredients that I find are very helpful 
when it comes to interactions between parents and teachers, not just between parents and challenging kids and teachers and challenging kids. So are you saying that parents and teachers also have a developmental delay? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, quite possibly. Um, one, of the, one definite developmental delay is that we're not all that good at collaborating with each other. And we're not all that good at working with each other. And we have this terrible tendency to think of solutions and throw them at each other way before we've uh, established the concerns of both parties. You asked me what's the most common scenario that I enter into in, in um, adversarial interactions between home and school. It's that the school has a solution on the table and the folks from home have a solution on the table and nobody's talking about what their concerns are yet. And so now we have uh, dueling solutions or otherwise known as a power struggle. Um, what a shame when instead we could have put a fair amount of effort and time into getting each other's concerns on the table and then working towards solutions that work for both parties. But unfortunately, that's not often how it goes. And that's the pity. So Dr. Green, I had a question sort of about the philosophy of all this. I mean, challenging kids are often labeled simply as bad kids. And you talked about this in your book, and they just simply need more discipline. So what sort of things could a teacher arm themselves with initially when they come across a challenging kid and they believe in your system, but they need to convince others that they're not just bad kids that need more discipline? What sort of things could we say as teachers? Well, um, the philosophical underpinning of the whole model is kids do well if they can. Because what you're likely to bump up against out there is a different philosophy, and that's kids do well if they want to. I think that's more common, absolutely. It is, and if, if my energy holds up, kids do all if they want to, uh, won't be so popular as time goes on, and it will re be replaced by kids do all if they can. Um, kids do all if they can says if this kid could do well, he would do well. If he's not doing well, something must be getting in his way. What's getting in his way? He's lacking the skills to do well, because doing well is always preferable to not doing well, but only if you have the skills to pull it off. So whenever I see a kid who's not doing well, I come to the immediate and very reliable conclusion that it must be lacking skills that are making it hard for him to do well, once again, because if he could do well, he would do well. Kids do all of – and that, what that philosophy points us to is interventions aimed at identifying what skills the kid is lacking and what unsolved problems are reliably and predictably precipitating his challenging episodes – and getting those problems solved collaboratively, and when we do it collaboratively, the skills get taught simultaneously. Kids do all if they want to. The basic philosophical underpinning there is that the kid doesn't want to do well. Uh, I've never met a kid who didn't want to do well. And so it is astounding that that belief system is as popular as it is. Okay, because so if you think a kid, you're sorry, saying if, if you think a kid isn't doing well because he doesn't want to, now what interventions does that point you at, making a kid want to do well? And now we are in the reward and punishment territories, and the bad news is that rewarding and punishing doesn't teach any lacking skills, nor does rewarding and punishing solve any problems durably. So you're saying that philosophically children as far that you come across almost consistently pretty much have good intentions. And so if something's not working, it's not because they have bad intentions. So we need to figure That's out correct. what the issue is. It's interesting, though, and this is probably another discussion, is why do we as a society think absolutely the opposite? <laughs> we assume it's they have bad intentions. I wonder why that is. But. Well, it's a fascinating tendency, and, and um, 
uh, it goes way back, believe it or not. I've actually started researching um, the kids do all if they want a mentality, and it's not unique to this generation or this century even. It goes way sure. back. Um, we have some belief systems that have formalized that mentality. Um, you know, the kid's doing it because it's working. The kid's doing it for attention. He's doing it because he's manipulative. He's, a, he's um, coercive. He's limit testing. He's uh, unmotivated. These are all belief systems that I have, in all of everything that I've written and spoken about, um, called into serious question. I find that when you really think about those ways of thinking, uh, they feel like sand through your fingers. And for me, the only conclusion that we could come to is that kids like adults want to do well. If they're not doing well, they must be lacking the skills to do well. And I find that to be a much more compassionate, humane, accurate interpretation of what's going on with them. And I think it points us to interventions that are more effective. So back to your question. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm um, getting over what potentially was the swine flu, although nobody seemed to care if it was the swine flu or not. Uh -oh. um, it, it was the flu for sure, but nobody seemed to care because I was getting better that it was the swine flu. Um, what can people do? Well, I could direct people to some paperwork. One piece of paperwork is called an instrument is called the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. It's a list of the skills challenging kids lack as well as a list of many of the unsolved problems that are frequently coming into play for these kids at home and school. Uh, I couldn't make an exhaustive list of the unsolved problems, so there's a place to write in random ones. Um, but many people find this to be a very useful tool for really thinking about what's really getting in the way for challenging kids, lagging skills, unsolved problems. And that's available at the Lost at School website, which is www.lostatschool.org. Um, another form is called the CPS Plan. It's one sheet. I, I try to keep the paperwork down. I find that people have enough paperwork as it is. So I've been referring to collaborative problem solving as a three-sheet intervention. Thank you. Another one is the CPS Plan, which is where you're keeping track of all the indispensable information. And the third, these are all available in the same place on the website, the third is called the Plan B flowchart, which is aimed at helping people keep track of the different unsolved problems that they're working on and where they are in the process of trying to arrive at solutions that are durable. Those are the things that a lot of people can do to get the ball rolling. So how, how successful do you, is the work with schools been going and, and looking forward, how, what sort of goals do you have in mind in that regard? When I'm working with schools? Yeah, I'm, because um, that, I'm sort of selfish. That's my point of view, so I'm yeah, wondering yeah. How, how well that's going. Well, the, I, I don't find it to be an unachievable goal at all, but big goal number one is to help people better understand why challenging kids are challenging. Big goal number two is to um, help schools intervene in ways that are much more proactive rather than reactive and emergent. A lot of school discipline is reactions, and we keep reacting and reacting and reacting to the same kid over and over again, and we keep applying the same punitive interventions that didn't work last week and didn't work last year and probably aren't going to work um, because we're intervening in a way that is so reactive and so time-consuming over time. It's really rather astounding how much time we spend reacting to challenging behavior for when, sure. when if we intervened proactively, we'd be spending a whole lot less time on these kids, and they'd be doing a whole lot better. 
And then big ingredient number three is to help people do collaborative problem solving well, because that's what we want them to be doing proactively, helping these kids solve the problems that are reliably and predictably weekly, daily, precipitating their challenging episodes and moving them from the unsolved pile into the solved pile. That's how you reduce challenging behavior in schools. So are you saying that, you know, once you introduce this model and you practice it with the kids, that eventually they can kind of generalize it? Well, some generalize more easily than others. But, yes, the goal is, just as you would with any other developmental delay, um, the reason that we are teaching kids, for example, who have a reading delay, the reason we're working with them to help them improve their reading skills is because we hope that over time the work that we're putting in and the time that we're putting in will help them read independently and not need our help anymore. The exact same mentality applies to collaborative problem solving. The reason we are helping the kid learn how to solve problems, the reason we are teaching them a lot of the skills that they're lacking by doing collaborative problem solving is because we want them not to need us anymore and to be able to handle life's challenges in a much more adaptive way over time. But I would say that each kid has his own timeline and some are faster than others. Well, Dr. Green, thank you so much for your, your time today. Do you mind if I ask you one follow-up question? No problem. Uh, what sort of you – know, you have a lot on your plate now. Do you have any future plans that you're looking to get into five, six, seven years from now, or are you just sort of busy with what you got? Um, well, at some point I'm going to open a school um, so that it will serve as a uh, model for other schools and invite people to come in and see what it looks like and how it's done. I'm working in many schools now. Schools have become a primary focus of mine. Um, And all I spend my time doing is thinking about how and in what better ways to disseminate this model so that people know about it, do it well, and help as many challenging kids as possible. That's sort of not only the one-day plan, it's the 20-year plan. So you you want to syndicate it in a sense. Well, I don't know if syndication is the best word. Disseminate (laughs) Disseminate might be better. And if you could, could you open up that school maybe tomorrow? Do you have a few minutes? Uh, there's many people who uh, would love it if I could do that. Uh, uh, that that's, that's, that's a major undertaking and one that I, um, that's percolating, but one that I haven't had enough time to put into yet to actually make it happen. Sure, sure, I understand. Okay, well, hey, thank you very much for your time today. We really thank appreciate you. it. Can My I just pleasure. say – I. Can I just say, too, I just want to thank you so much for being so respectful to these difficult kids because I am raising one, and when I read your books, I, I can totally feel the, the huge respect for you have for children, and it's, it's a really good thing. Thank you. Thank you. And, and I would, the only thing I would add to that, I know you're not supposed to add on to compliments, but I think I will. <laughs> I, I find that it's not just challenging kids who we need to be more respectful of. I think it's every kid that we need to be more respectful of. Mm, um, I think sure. we need to treat them the way we'd want to be treated, and so often we don't, and um, that's a shame. But thanks for having me on. Thank you once again. Thanks for listening to today's show. But we always want to hear more from you, so feel free to write us. Our email address is letters at autismpodcast.org. And as always, feel free to take advantage of our subscription options. On the website, you can find an opportunity to input your email address and you'll be notified of every new show. You can subscribe to us through iTunes. Just go to iTunes and search for Autism Podcast and we'll come up there. Lastly, Shannon and I both have Twitter accounts. My uh, Twitter account name is Autism Podcast. And Shannon's has actually been changed. Her new one is Shannon H. 
Johnson. Until next time, take care.